Acts chapter 7, verse 54. We are beginning today with the stoning of Stephen. Um, again, to set the context, in chapter 6, uh, the original servants slash deacons were chosen from among the Greek-speaking Jewish community that had embraced Jesus there in Jerusalem. Uh, one of those chosen was Stephen. Uh, you notice that uh, Stephen evidently did not just serve tables of uh, the Gentile or the Greek-speaking Jews uh, who had embraced Christ, the widows. He was, he was not just one who served tables. He went out and preached. And he witnessed to Jesus Christ. And you see in uh, the early or the latter parts of chapter 6, after he's chosen the early parts of chapter 6, he, um, he, he gets into a debate with folks from a particular synagogue there in Jerusalem, the Freeman Synagogue. And that included people from Cilicia, which is that region in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey, where you would have found the city of Tarsus, which was uh, Saul, Paul's hometown. Anyway, as a result of uh, witnessing to his faith in Christ to those people, uh, he ended up getting arrested. He ended up getting brought before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, uh, the same people that Jesus had to deal with. And they brought accusations. We talked about that last week. They, he brought, they brought accusations against him. He, he, he was not against the temple. He was not against the law of Moses. He just believed that Jesus had fulfilled much of the law of Moses. And he was adamant that you don't have to go to the temple to experience God. He wasn't against the temple. But he pointed out how Moses experienced God in the wilderness, how Joseph experienced God in Egypt, how Abraham experienced God uh, in Mesopotamia. Um, so after uh, he kind of went through Israelite history, making his case, bringing them down to the time of Jesus, he gave them that altar call that I pointed out to you last week. So just let's look at this. We, we can review just a little bit. Verse 51 is where he concludes his speech, which is the longest speech, longest sermon in the book of Acts. He concludes his sermon by saying, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You, you who received the law as delivered by angels uh, did not keep it. I suspect at this point probably where he was heading was um, after this um, altar call, after he was speaking very convicting words, challenging words uh, to the Sanhedrin, he probably was heading uh, to call them to repentance. But you notice he didn't get the opportunity to call them to repentance. Uh, he gets interrupted. Uh, his speech gets interrupted. I don't think he was finished because there is no call to repentance here. I don't think he... Um, was finished. So let's pick up verse 54. <clears throat> now when they, and this is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And that word there, enraged, like a few other words here in this text, is a, is a powerful word. They were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. 
Uh, that's sort of the Hebraic metaphor image to just say completely and totally enraged. Verse 55, but he, Stephen, he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So uh, as they are um, enraged with him, I think he knows what's coming, and God grants him this vision. He, he sees into heaven. He sees the glory of God, not God, but the glory of God, and he sees Jesus. Um, a great vision to receive before you make your transition from this world to the world to come. Notice the posture of Jesus. Because um, we say frequently in the New Testament and in our historic creeds that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty, God the Father Almighty. Uh, but he's not seated here. What's he doing? He's standing. We've noticed this for a couple thousand years, and we, we think this is very significant. Um, He's standing. He sees heaven open, the Son of Man. That's Jesus' favorite self-designation, Son of Man. It comes from the book of Daniel. He sees the Son of Man, Son of God, stand, Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So we have to say, hmm, standing. Everything else in the New Testament says he's seated because that, that implies his finished work. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's the place of authority. Um, that also implies some unity with God the Father. Uh, but he's not seated here. He's standing. Um, if you look back over our literature over the last couple thousand years, what most of us say about this is, is, is perhaps one of two things or both of these things. Jesus is standing. He's gotten up in order to receive Stephen in order to welcome Stephen home. Uh, something else that people have pointed out over the centuries is that frequently in the, um, in the Jewish world, uh, when a judge rendered his, and it would always be a his, when a judge rendered his verdict, the judge would stand to render his verdict. So here's Jesus perhaps standing as Stephen's judge to render his verdict. And by the way, it's going to be a good verdict for Stephen. And he's standing to receive Stephen. A beautiful picture. And the, and the Jewish religious leaders understood what he was saying. When, when he, he said, because he said evidently to the people there, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That put Jesus in a very special place in relationship with God. Uh, that being at the right hand is a place of authority. That being at the right hand is a place of shared power. That is uh, early Christian language for saying that there's divinity in Jesus. Jesus shares the Godhead. Jesus is the very word of God. Jesus is the work of God. There's a close, close unity between this Jesus and, and God. So you're not surprised that when Stephen says this, what the crowd does. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears. Because this was blasphemy to them. To say who they believed to be a human being that Rome had executed, to say that this Jesus is at the right hand of God. And that's blasphemy. 
um, to exalt a human being to that place. And that's why when they said that, the crowd uh, had heard all that they could hear. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears because they didn't want to hear anymore. And they rushed. Uh, they rushed together with him. That's the same word that Jesus used for um, when the swine rushed down the hill at Gadara and the swine were, were drowned in the Sea of Galilee when Jesus cast uh, the demons into the swine. Remember that story from the Gospels? That's the same word he uses here for these, these men. I'm sure they're all men. They're rushing together at him. Then, verse 58, then they cast him out of the city. Um, again, I think I mentioned to you, if you go to, go to Jerusalem, you'll see it's, called, it's usually called the Lion's Gate now. For those of you who have been with me, it's the gate we go through in order to get into the area of the Pool of Bethesda. That's the Lion's Gate today. It's also called St. Stephen's Gate uh, because it marks the location where we think this happened, where tradition tells us this happened. But you notice they cast him out of the holy city. They don't want to defile the holy city by this lynching. And that's an anachronistic modern term, but that's pretty much what's going on here. Uh, it's, it's, a mob, it's a mob riot. They cast him out of the city. They don't want to defile the holiness of Jerusalem. They cast him out of the city, um, and they stoned him. That was the uh, normal way of capital punishment among, among the Jewish world, stoning. Um, Persians, then Romans, crucified, but... Um, Jews stoned. Now, one of the um, questions that we've asked about this text for a couple thousand years is, is this a legal or illegal act? Uh, notice they don't go to Pontius Pilate to get permission to kill like they did with Jesus. Um, but you're going to see in the next phrase, and the witnesses, that, uh, that, sounds, that sounds legal there, that there were witnesses called against um, Stephen, but again, it was, we imagine sort of like Jesus, there were witnesses called against Jesus, and it had the appearance of a legal trial, but we know that the trials of, of Jesus were not legal. Uh, they were done in the night, and that was an illegal time to have trials for the Sanhedrin. So um, they're, they're trying to make this look a little official, but it, it really is a mob act here. As, uh, as, as they take him to throw him outside the city and they stone him. And evidently, the, the first people to stone were, were, were the witnesses that were called. Um, and that was typical in a Jewish court setting. Um, the witnesses that were called against you, if they had something against you, they got, to, they got to begin the execution. And that appears to be what's happening here. And the witnesses... Uh, laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So here is um, here's Saul. Um, you know him as Paul, probably. He has a Hebrew name, Saul. He has a, a Roman name, Paul. He had both names all of his life. You know, it really bothers me when I hear very intelligent preachers you know, think that, or they preach in such a way they think Paul, they think Saul got a new name in his conversion. He was Saul while he was on the horse, got knocked down, and he got up as Paul. Um, read the book of Acts. He is still called Saul for several more chapters. 
He is still called Saul until chapter 13. He had both names. This was typical. He had both names, a Hebrew name and a Roman name, because, again, he was from Tarsus, which was outside of the Holy Land. He was a Roman citizen, but he was Jewish. That's why he was trained in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. So he would have had a Roman name and a Hebrew name. Uh, in, In Jerusalem and among Hebrew people, he would have been Saul, such as here, he's Saul, he's in Jerusalem, we're still in Jerusalem. Uh, This is a turning point, by the way, in the book of Acts, because it is at this point that, um, that they begin to move out, some of them begin to move out of Jerusalem. They're still at Jerusalem at this point. Uh, this is headquarters. This is the holy city. Uh, this is the city for us. They're still in Jerusalem. So uh, they, they, they lay their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Why would they take their garments off to throw the rocks, to throw the stones? I don't throw a lot of rocks, but I guess it gives you a little more freedom, mobility um, to throw rocks. You know, when you, when you get agitated and you need to move and move quickly, you, you get rid of the excess clothing. Um, it's the only thing most of us can imagine. Uh, they, lay, they lay their garments, but the important thing for Luke's perspective, author of Acts, is that they lay them at the feet of, um, of a young man named Saul, probably in his 20s. Uh, they lay them at his feet. So Saul is here. It doesn't appear he's throwing the rocks, but he's here. Uh, this was his synagogue, we think, Cilicia, Tarsus. This was his synagogue that he probably attended there in Jerusalem. He probably had had been part of the debate with Stephen. He, he obviously just heard Stephen's long speech, this record here in the book of Acts. And um, so he consents to the, to the murder of Stephen. Um, he may be the ringleader. We, we, we try to think about that. He may be the ringleader of the synagogue. Paul was a sharp guy. Everyone always recognized Paul's intelligence. Uh, when God called Paul into Christian service, he knew exactly what he was doing. Here was someone brilliant in Greco, Greco-Roman culture and brilliant in Jewish culture. There probably were not a lot of those kind of folks around in the first century. So he may very well have been in leadership there in the synagogue. And um, so he may be the ringleader of this killing of Stephen. Now, I want you to watch watch the, the death of Stephen. Um, you know, and you, you can't help but think about the death of Jesus. He models the death of Jesus in, in many ways. You know, everything from being hauled before the Sanhedrin in a... Um, sort of kangaroo court that's somewhat legal, but really illegal. Um, The death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, in many ways models the the death of Jesus. Um, Look at verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive or welcome my spirit. Remember Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. So he's praying to um, notice. He's praying to Lord Jesus. Again, that would have brought more rocks on Stephen's head. Lord is a word that's reserved for one and one person only in the Hebrew faith. That's God. And here, here, um, here Stephen says, Lord Jesus. So... Um, yeah, he, he's not walking away from his faith in who Jesus Christ is. 
And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive, welcome my spirit. In, 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 in imitation of Christ, um, look at verse 6. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Um, Father, forgive them. Jesus said the same thing. So here's, here's Stephen dying with, you could say, two prayers on his breath as he's dying. Um, you know, I, 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 I do still hang out some with friends who are Benedictine monks. And the Benedictine monks have taught me a lot over the last, ooh, almost 50 years now. Uh, they've taught me a lot uh, for over 40-some years. Um, and the Benedictine tradition is, is one of the oldest traditions in the Christian community. It goes back to the, to the 6th century uh, there in Italy. And uh, they still pretty much do things the way they did in the 6th century uh, as far as their spiritual life and their focus and their prayer life and their witness to Christ. But one of the things that has um, always been a strong um, Benedictine emphasis, and we get to... Anytime I join them, this is always, usually always, part of uh, the prayer time in a Benedictine monastery, uh, the prayer for a good death. You know, I don't know that we do that much in our... We, we deny death. We hide death. We don't want to think about death. Um, but our ancestors didn't have that privilege. They were surrounded by death. They couldn't live with a delusion that they were going to live on this earth forever. So our ancestors uh, saw a lot of death, and the Benedictines particularly pray for a good death. Now, what they mean by that, I I'm sure sometimes they mean by that is a death that doesn't involve a whole lot of suffering. I'm sure they probably mean that. Um, my wife, by the way, I, I was just telling someone's a hospice nurse, and you know, every time somebody in her presence says something about wanting to die suddenly, you know, just kind of go asleep fall asleep, she will probably remind you very few human beings get that privilege. Uh, usually our transition from this world to the world to come involves some sickness, involves some suffering. So in the Benedictine uh, monastic environment prays for a good death, they probably are praying that, you know, that, that you can die with some dignity, some grace, die with a minimal amount of um, suffering. I know when I, when I pray for people at that point in their life, uh, I quote an old Southern Gospel hymn. Uh, I, I ask God to lead this person gently home. Sometimes it's not so gentle. But um, the Benedictines pray for a good death. What they really mean by that is not just a, a easy death. What they really mean by that is they die obviously in the faith. They die with something like Stephen here, with, with um, prayers on their lips. Um, they, they, they love to die. Like the Jewish world loves to die, at least very devout practicing Jews, love to die saying the Shema, you know, the creed of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Um, you know, a good death for them is dying with that on your lips. In the Benedictine world, um, good death may also involve dying um, with the taste of Holy Communion still in your mouth. Um, there's a lot that they mean by good death. Um, but our death should witness to our faith in Christ. That's why, by the way, we have a last will and what? 
Yeah, bear, bear testimony. Don't just tell your kids who, get, who gets what. Um, with what you leave them to read after you're gone, my kids know they're going to get an earful from me. Because <laughs> I, I won't have much to leave them in regards to material things, but I'll have some things to say to them. Um, that's your last will and testament. New Testament, Old Testament, last will and testament. Um, here's Stephen dying with two prayers on his lips. This is a model of, of, of a good death. You know, I, I, I'm always amazed at people who just don't ever think this time's coming. Um, again, this culture lives with an illusion. You know, I remember it was, um, I, I served at West Lone Community Hospital uh, doing chaplaincy training for a year back in the early 1980s. I learned so much. I was very young, very young back then. I learned so much really about sickness and death. And one of the things I learned about death was when someone died, there was like this vanishing act. The body sort of goes away. Nobody sees the body. You know, the funeral home, you kind of hide it away till the funeral home comes and gets it. Our ancestors always saw death. And uh, that's why every time they went to sleep at night, and you've heard me say this probably before, every time they went to sleep at night, Compline, the last prayer of the day, is a prayer where you recite uh, the Song of Simeon, where, you remember, Jesus has a baby Simeon, and the old Simeon says, Now, God, I can depart in peace. I've seen your salvation, the light to the Gentiles. So that's why in, in Christian tradition, the final prayer, as you kind of go into... Um, as you come dead to this world in sleep, as you head that direction, you remember your death. And you see death as a, as a you see sleeping as a quasi-death. And that's, you, you remember that. Every night, you spend a little time meditating that this life's going to come to an end and you are going to pass from this world to the world to come. And again, that's so ingrained in Christian tradition. Uh, it became that rather juvenile prayer. Lord, I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Probably scares children to death in this world. <laughs> but that goes back to that tradition that we need to contemplate our death occasionally. You know, sometimes when I'm not in my best moods, I go home and I tell Tammy, I say, I wish some people would at least live in such a way to give me something, something good to say about them at their funeral. <laughs> You know, if, if, if you contemplated your death more, our ancestors always did this. If you contemplated your death more, uh, life would become uh, probably richer in a lot of ways. Um, anyway, here's an example of the first Christian martyr. Uh, we've learned a lot from the martyrs in the Christian faith. I like that old prayer in the Christian tradition uh, that occurs uh, at the end of a funeral service where the um, clergy uh, is offering a, a prayer uh, over the deceased, praying that the angels will welcome that person to heaven, praying that the martyrs will welcome that person to heaven. You know, I, I'm looking forward to meeting the angels, but I'm probably more looking forward to meeting the martyrs that I get to meet on the other side, people like Stephen. So, um, yeah, just, just, you know... I, the world probably thinks it's morbid, but contemplate your death sometimes. 
Think about what your family would like to see and hear, what, what they need to see and hear uh, at, at that point. Um, anyway, so Stephen dies with the two prayers on his lips, modeling Jesus. We need to model Jesus. We need to model Stephen as Stephen modeled Jesus. So he has two prayers on his lips. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It was St. Augustine who famously said, um, if Stephen had not prayed, the church would not have Paul. You know, maybe, maybe not. But here's Stephen praying for Paul. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And Paul was one of the them at this point. And then notice what it says to summarize. And when he had said this, he did what? That's language the New Testament uses frequently for death. You fall asleep. It doesn't mean you, you go into uh, you know, a non-existence. It just means there's a great awakening to follow this. And it is just falling asleep. Uh, the Apostle Paul occasionally uses the word departure. It is a departure. It is a falling asleep. You know, I know the world sees death so differently from the way we should see death. Um, the world would have seen this and seen it as just a terrible tragedy. And in some ways it was. But God's going to make it something other than a terrible tragedy. You need to keep reading. Remember these, these numbers that you find in your Bible, like chapter and verse um, distinctions, were put in in the Middle Ages. They're, they're late to the, to the show. Um, so when Luke was writing, he didn't stop at this point and say, okay, now I go to chapter 8. Luke just kept writing, so you need to keep reading. Uh, the end of chapter 7, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. Keep going, and Saul approved of his execution. Saul's going to have a lot to do in the rest of the book of Acts. And this is how, this is how we're introduced to Saul right here. Saul approved of his execution. And then notice how God, how God brings good out of this. Keep reading. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church, one of the few occurrences of the word church in the New Testament, against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So you see what God brought out of this? Evidently, the killing of Stephen led to greater persecution of the Christians there in Jerusalem. And as a result of it, some of the Christians decided to get out of Dodge, or at least get out of Jerusalem. And um, that's what Jesus told them to do anyway, right? Go, go into the world. And, the, and just this reference to the regions of Judea and Samaria takes you back to the, the theme verse of the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus said, Go into all the world, beginning in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then the ends of the, ends of the earth. Um, Judea is the region around Jerusalem. Samaria is the next region uh, north of uh, Judea. So they start, they start scattering. Uh, the early Christians start scattering. Some of the early Christians start, start, start scattering. We've always noticed, though, with some curiosity, it says they scattered except the apostles. And we say, hmm, wonder why. 
Why did Peter stay and James and John? Uh, Philip, you're going to see it after this part of the story ends. You're going to move into a, a somewhat extended account about Philip, another deacon. And then you're going to eventually move on into uh, Paul and his ministries. But uh, for some reason, the, um, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Um, not sure why. We can... We can um, we can sort of postulate that maybe they stayed to, um, maybe the, the, the early church needed them there. They were the teachers. Um, Jerusalem is the holy city. If Jerusalem doesn't mean something special to you, uh, see me and give me a couple hours and I'll help you warm up to the importance of Jerusalem. The apostles stayed put in, in, in Jerusalem uh, while much of the church was scattered um, they probably needed to be there. They were teaching the people that were going out into the world, and eventually they make it all the way to High Point as they get scattered out of Jerusalem. Um, Peter Dabb, by the way, was the Methodist preacher who founded this church in 1856. So the missionaries are still going and still being sent. But the apostles stayed put. The, um, a lot of the Christians went. Look at verse 2. And this may be also the reason the apostles stayed. Devout men buried Stephen. Burial is a big deal in the Jewish community. And it became a big deal in the Christian community. How many of you ever been to the catacombs in Rome? Um, burial was a big deal in the Jewish community. Burial was a big deal in the Christian community. What we do with the body, for the body, we do with great respect and reverence because the body's part of God's good creation. So devout men, we don't really know who these men are. They could be pious Jews. They could be devout Jews who become Christian. But it doesn't even say they're Christian. It's just devout men buried Stephen because that's just what you do. That's what you do. You care for the body and you reverently and respectfully lay it to rest. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. The culture of the Middle East knows how to make great lamentation. We know how to grieve. They know how to grieve and mourn. Mourning, mourning is the outward expression. If you don't mourn and you only grieve, I'm going to sick my wife on you. Because <laughs> she'll tell you how unhealthy that is. Now, you don't have to mourn in front of all your friends and family, but you better be mourning somewhere. You better be letting it out somewhere. And if you've seen uh, anything about Middle Eastern funerals, they let it out. You know, they grieve and they mourn. They're not um, emotionally constipated like some of us Southerners are. That's one of my wife's terms, too, for, for my family and my culture. But you need to grieve and mourn and mourn. They were, they were grieving and they were mourning. They made great lamentation over Stephen. Verse 3, and this is where we'll stop at today. Verse 3, because this kind of, this is a hinge. This, is a, this section we're looking at today is a turning point in the book of Acts. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church. Uh, look at that word ravaging. It may be different in your translation. It's a fascinating Greek word. It's used in the Septuagint to talk about how a wild boar can destroy a garden. Ravaging. 
So that's what Saul, Paul, was doing. Paul, in this persecution that followed the, the, the martyrdom of Stephen, uh, was a, was a wide-ranging persecution. Saul was ravaging the church. There's the word churchy. And Paul was ravaging the church. He's ravaging the Christian community. He's entering house after house. You know, the church has gone underground at this point somewhat. And he's entering house after house. He dragged off men. And notice Luke says men and women. That shows you the anger, the rage of Paul. Again, he thinks these early Christians are blaspheming to say that this human being, this historical character, this person who walked Palestine is somehow part of God. That is the height of blasphemy to a pure monotheist, which is why it should startle you when these pure monotheists start doing it with Jesus. Pure monotheists don't add people to the, to the divine easily. And it's clear in the Bible, it's clear in Christian history, they at the start were seeing Jesus in a way that was so un-Jewish. That was so un-Jewish. They, 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 they added Jesus to the Godhead. They made Jesus of divine nature, Jesus of divine status, Jesus the incarnation of God in the world. So it, it is really easy, it's very easy to understand why the devout, orthodox, observant leaders of the Jewish people were enraged. That's like one of you jumping up and saying, I think I'll be God for a season. The height of blasphemy. And that's where Paul was at this point. And you, you'll see later in the story when Paul shows up in the Christian community and says, I'm one of you now. Yeah, that's how they responded. They didn't warm up. It's, it's Barnabas who helped them warm up to, to Paul because this is the Paul they knew. This is the Paul they knew who, um, who went after Christians, even the women. And by the way, this, women were part of the early Christian community, and they, they were enough of the early Christian community, they warranted being dragged off by the Apostle Paul, who's not an apostle at this point. But this is the Saul, the Paul that they knew. Um, talk about how, how, how God can change a human life. Yeah, Paul, Saul is going to change dramatically. Um, this is the way you're introduced to uh, Paul, Saul, in the book of Acts. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. So, um, in verse 4, you get to head, you get to head um, into Philip's ministry. And probably Philip is less well-known than Stephen. People at least know Stephen got killed. Uh, I'm not sure people know much about Philip. But again, both Philip and Stephen were among those early deacons, those that were chosen to assist the apostles. And uh, you've seen the ministry of Stephen. And uh, beginning at verse 4, you're going to go into the ministry of Philip. So, I don't want to go into the ministry of Philip at this point. Um, amazing, amazing stuff here. A lot to think about. This is probably one of my favorite 
text in the book of Acts. It is a turning point. Um, one of my favorite sermon series I've preached over the years has been a sermon series on Stephen. Because you can spend a lot of time in Stephen's sermon. And I do hope you read Stephen's sermon. Uh, I feel disrespectful the way I've kind of jumped over Stephen's sermon. It's a long sermon. But I hope that you read it. Um, and you got his vision of how Jewish history played out up to the time of Jesus. Um, but I wanted to make sure we stayed with the story of Stephen, uh, an amazing story. Well, you're going to have extra time to fellowship today. Uh, we, will, we will get into Philip um, and his, his ministry in Samaria. We know about Samaria. We'll talk about Samaria. Uh, he's going to go to Samaria and do ministry there. Let's pray together. God, for the gift of this day, we give you thanks for the gift of your spirit that can take our lives and make more of us than we could ever imagine. We give you thanks. We give you thanks, God, for the opportunities we have to witness to our faith in Jesus Christ. And may we never seek to live a life of secret service, but may we seek to live a life where the light of Christ shines through us to the world around us. God, we thank you for your word and how your word forms us into a community, how your word reforms us when we need to be reformed, and how your word transforms us. We thank you, God, that your word brings life, and we pray that we'll always have the grace to receive the life that you bring to us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I'm sure there's probably more gravy biscuits back there. Because what he does is when you finish, he tells the whole staff that's down here, and they kind of descend as, as vultures to get the leftovers. But I'm sure there's leftovers back there.